0: All right, and am I reading this before you come, or we have a reading from Romans? I can. Is that a little sneaky slide there? Okay, great. Fantastic. We're going to transition into a, a time of teaching. I'm going to invite Gordy to come. Okay, sounds good. And I'm going to read this verse now, as Gordy comes from the book of Romans, chapter fifteen, verse fourteen. So this would be Paul writing to the Romans. Mm-hmm. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: May I pray for you? Great. Do you are you mic'd up? Okay, great. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your promise of who you are. You are the gift that Jesus told us would be better than his very physical presence with us. You said you would give us the words to say. You said you would comfort and encourage us. That you would fill us with all truth and that your perfect love casts out all fear. We stand on all those things today Thank you for their presence in Gordy, who is your son, who loves you and loves truth and loves to use his gift of teaching to serve you. Thank you for the gift that he is to us. Thank you for the gift that this word is today. We pray again that there would be nothing that would keep us from this word and from this truth, and we speak peace over Gordy and over each one of us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
1: Thanks, Joanna. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. So, uh, yeah, I kind of had a little kerfuffle this morning, and it it all boils down to me taking on one more task that I probably should have left till later. But it's all good. I'm glad I'm here. Uh, Good to see you. Happy, uh, what is it, 17th Sunday of Pentecost? And we're roaring towards Advent soon. Today we're going to be having communion. And this topic really fits well with communion. And mind you, I think based on our message, I think uh, uh, everything points towards the table. But particularly today, the first, uh, we're we're going through a year series on sustainability. Our theme is sustainability. And there's probably few things that have... um, derailed the train, uh, the church's, uh the church train of stu- uh, sustainability has been conflict, this issue of conflict and how do we handle conflict as the church? And, um, and so for that reason we're doing a series called The Art of Civil Discourse and I love this little uh, meme that Tay found uh, for my series, I think that about says it all right there now we can give the altar call um, But does anybody know what this is? Maybe to introduce this series, does anybody know what we're looking at right there? Tide coming in. Some waves. Uh, I heard somebody say tsunami. Where the river meets the ocean. Well, this is actually a picture of the 2004 tsunami that hit the Indian Ocean and wiped out and and killed 100,000 people. And I was looking for a picture about a tsunami at one point, and I was looking for one of those dramatic ones, you know, from those movies where where New York is getting buried by this wave. (laughs) So I was looking for that kind of tsunami, but when I looked for a real tsunami, this is what it looked like. And I was shocked. Because it doesn't look like one, does it? But um, it's, 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 it doesn't look that dangerous. This was off the coast of Samoa on the Indian Ocean in 2004, remember in December, where I think it was 100,000 or 200,000 people lost their lives, some while they were worshiping in church. As my Uncle Dave says, I don't understand God. Um... Accompanying it was the story of a British surfer. And he was surfing and he saw this wave coming. And so when he saw it, rather than running away from it, he paddled towards it as fast as he could. I guess he knew what was happening. Aiming the tip of his surfboard up to ensure its nose was not pushed under by the towering wall of water. He said he he rose up and rode up high on this wave and went over the top of it and he survived the most deadly tsunami in memorable history because he knew how to navigate it. And I think this provides a picture of our times for us. There's uh, metaphorically tsunamis hitting society and hitting the church and it all has to do with conflict and disagreement and how do we deal with that? And it involves doing something that's counterintuitive. Especially if you're Canadian, you like to run away from those kind of tsunamis. Or we draw our defensive lines in the sand and of course get destroyed by it. Uh, Both are not good, are they? And so, God is inviting us to a third way, and that's kind of how I wanted to introduce this series, is there's a third way to deal with tsunamis, rather than running from it when you're in the wake of it and you're not going to get away, which is true, metaphorically. We're in the middle of it. And rather than drawing our little castles in the sand or our lines in the sand, but we find ways like this surfer to navigate it. So that's kind of what I want to talk about today and in the, in the coming weeks. I think it's really important for the church. I should say to you that this is a conversation I've been having outside of our church for probably 15 to 20 years. And it's, this is probably the most intentional way that I'm bringing you into that conversation. I've talked to a lot of you one-on-one about it. But I feel like it's time to just bring it into a teaching series and provide some context. And so our fall theme is sharpening our focus in this whole context of sustainability that, that lack of focus is unsustainable and there's few things that cause us to lose our focus more than conflict when we come to disagreements. So, so do we need this topic? What do you think? So, our society, in my observation, in my 62 years of existence, has never been more divided and polarized. And I've, you know, I lived through the civil, uh, the, uh, civil unrest of the 60s and the, the counterculture movement and all of that, the Vietnam draft uh, protests. So I've seen some real conflicts, but there's something about the polarization today that is taking it to a new level. And we see this particularly south of the border uh, with the last American election. Uh, my American friends tell me that this division, or political division, uh, goes right down the middle of family dinners. It destroyed American Thanksgivings in many homes. But this has not only been true of America, it's been true in other nations as well. One of our international homestays comes from a nation that had a similar kind of divisive election recently, and her brother was forbidden to come home for Christmas. It was unbelievable. Can you imagine? because of his political views. And fortunately, the family recanted that decision, and he did come home, but it it speaks to the kind of conflict. I think with the advent of social media, it's taken it to a whole new level, Uh, because we can put our opinions out there in a way that we never used to be able to. We used to kind of be able to keep things to ourselves and, 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 and keep to our own crowd. But it seems like social media has provided a place where we have formed now these social silos. Do you know what a silo is? A silo is like if you're from the prairies, it's like where you keep your grain, or uh, it's a place where they keep nuclear uh, weapons protected, uh, supposedly from protecting so supposedly the public from these nuclear weapons. But a silo is... Happens socially where we isolate ourselves with those that we agree with and we only listen to them and we only talk to them and it creates this echo chamber like this uh, relational social echo chamber where all we're hearing is what we want to hear and what we agree with and so we choose not to listen or learn from those who differ. I love a quote by Mirzlav Volf, one of my favorite writers. Uh, talks about, uh, you're, you haven't really listened well until you can argue your opponent's position convincingly. Sometimes when you do that, you get sold. <laughs> so. The book of Psalms I was reading this week struck me because violence does not start out here. It starts in the heart. Violence starts with our language. So from the heart to the language. The psalmist said, save me from the violent who devise evil plans in their heart and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as serpents. The poison of vipers is on their lips. And this violent language, this violent communication is so rampant in our society and, and often in cultures has preceded actual physical violence. And one characteristic of violent language is we demonize pe- people, we label them. And when I say we label them, we, we, uh, it's a way of dismissing what, anything they have to say because of their label. Redneck, lefty. Socialist, communist, conservative, traditionalist, liberal, nimby, yimby, you know what a yimby is? No. Yes, in my backyard. <laughs> and the list goes, I just found that out this week. So, the problem with this, of course, and you know this, is we as human beings can never be summarized by a sing- single label. You're too complex and nuanced for that. But labels serve to divide us and get us to stop listening and eventually get us to stop speaking to one another. And contrary to the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, whose feast we celebrated this weekend, and by the way, it was so cute, St. Francis of Assisi, they had this big sandwich board. I walked by it on Friday morning, and they said, we're doing the blessing of the pets. And they had a, everybody could bring their pet yesterday and get blessed. Isn't that beautiful? I think we should have church like that some Sunday. we have to pray for all those allergies and things like that, but um, wouldn't that be fun? And so, contrary to St. Francis' prayer, we become more focused on being heard than the listening, and we become more focused on seeking to be understood than to understand. And sadly, this is no less true in the church. Surprise, surprise, surprise. The church was given by God as a sacrament or a gift of peace and unity in a fractured world. That's what this is about. But sadly, we haven't always done that very well. For example, my roots, my last name is Lagor, which in French, I think, is the blood, something like that. One time... I was invited to lead a tour to Israel and they misspelled my first name. And they said, this was when Gaddafi was threatening to blow airplanes out of the sky that flew into Israel. And they misspelled my name on the poster. Come to Israel with Gori Lagore. <laughs> we didn't get a big sign up for that anyway. Anyway, my last name is Lagore, which is Francais. So the question is, why? are my ancestors, four or five generations ago, German-speaking French people who ended up in the USA. If you look up the Ohio registry, a lot of Lagores in in Ohio. And my grandpa, my great-grandpa, by the name of George Washington Lagore, I'm not kidding. My middle name is still George, named after him. And my dad, of course. But... They came to Canada about four generations ago and started farming in, in central Alberta. But it always intrigued me why my ancestors spoke German and i didn't get in, I, I did a, a study in church history. my project in the, my Regent church history class was on the Huguenots of France, and I discovered something amazing about this is that the only thing that makes any sense to my name and my history, and I, don't have a, I haven't done a DNA check on this, but it seems that we were French refugees who fled France and went to Germany because of the French religious wars. Why? Well, many may not realize that the Protestant Reformation did not begin with Martin Luther. He is probably the most well known reformer, but it actually began in France. Woohoo! With a scholar at the University of Paris by the name of Jacques Lefebvre. Not kidding. In the 14th century, he began to teach at the University of Paris justification by faith. And so the Reformation began in France, and it influenced a young scholar who came a bit later by the name of Jean. Calvin, his English name is John Calvin, and he was part of the French Huguenot. Huguenot is basically a name for the French Protestants. And Calvin, uh, as as the French uh, Protestants grew in strength, they were persecuted by the Catholics, so they fled France, and John ended up, Jean Calvin ended up in Geneva and led the Swiss Reform, the French side of the Swiss Reform movement along with Zwingli in, in Zurich. And um, it wasn't a long until the, this Reformation brought division and conflict in France, and it launched France into a, a bloody religious war, a brutal war that lasted 50 years, and over three million people lost their lives. It was bloody, but not as bloody as the Thirty Year War. Has anybody ever heard of the Thirty Year War? Similar to the French Civil War, except it was the rest of Europe, Christian Europe. And these nation-states that were usually characterized by either being Catholic or Protestant fought each other. And in that 30-year period, over 8 million people lost their lives. 20% of the German population was killed, and towards a black force, 50% of Germans died in this bloody civil war, or bloody religious war. And many link these religious wars to the root causes of the First and the Second World War. Now what does it tell you about how we understand our faith that the bloodiest wars of human history have been fought among so-called Christian nations? Well, it all went wrong. See, we had this understanding of, of, of being unity and peaceful up to about 300 A.D., and the problem came when Constantine, the, emperor of the, Rome, of, of, uh, the Roman emperor, decided to make Christianity the official state religion. And all of a sudden, instead of being the marginalized and the weak and the poor in spirit and the, the people of the Beatitudes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we became the people who had the power. And we began to fight over it, over that power, with religious reasons with religious, you know, veneer for it. And so what were the... the um, um, and that's why I tell Christians, don't get online and, 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 and accuse Muslims of being a violent, bloody religion. We got our own stuff to deal with. Okay, they have their issues. I understand that. But we got a bunch of fingers pointing back at ourselves. And, and I, I think it's very unfair to judge a religion... Do you want people to judge Christians by the Inquisition? Do you want people to judge you by the Crusades? No. So do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So what were the issues? The Catholics and Protestants had problems sharing the same space. The Protestants found the mass disgusting. They thought it was a recreation of the crucifixion, that the the Catholics were... We're we're crucifying Jesus all over again. And the Catholics would flaunt it because they'd come down Main Street in town with their Mass. And it was so revolting to the Protestants. Well, the Catholics had problems with the Protestants' loud singing. They'd get into these churches, they'd sing so loud and interrupt their contemplative peace. Now, I should say, as I said, the church was a beautiful sacrament of unity for the first 300 years. But as a result of this blend of the, inquis- uh, of the Roman authority and the church, by the way, many Christians fled that into the desert. That's where the monastic movements came from the desert fathers and the desert mothers. They thought, we can't, this is, this is too crazy. And a lot of our spiritual, spirituality that we, we learn today comes from those traditions. And they, they felt like they needed to go into the desert, like the children of Israel did. From Egypt and like Elijah did, and other John the Baptist and other prophets to, to, to sharpen their discernment, to clarify their hearing and their seeing. And so this marriage produced the Inquisition. This marriage produced colonialism. That's where colonialism, the residential schools, comes from this marriage between the government and religion, the power. Now, I'm not saying Christians shouldn't be involved in government, but, it, but Constantine took uh, Christianity to a whole different level with this decision. And we've been struggling ever since with how to deal with power and influence in society. If I was to negatively call this t- entitle this series, I would call it The Art of Disagreeing Lovingly. This division continues to, t- to today since the Protestant Reformation since that first conflict with the Catholics, it didn't start, stop there. There was conflicts among the Protestants. You know, there was a place in Germany called Hernhut. And a lot of refugees from all over Europe would come to this place for refuge. And then all the Protestants would be fighting each other at Hernhut. And it took a miracle of God. It, it, there was a miracle that brought them together to form a wonderful missionary movement called the Moravians. But it was hard. There was war between the Calvinists and the Armenians... ...between John Wesley and George Whitfield in England. They say there's, between, uh, there's up to 50,000 denominations in the world today... ...and five new ones are formed every week. Do we need this series? Have I convinced you? So in light of this, Paul writes... ...I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters... ...that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. This is so powerful. Now, it seems benign. It's like, what, what, Gordy, what does that have to do with anything? It's simply this. It is loaded. Because it, it's in the book of Romans, okay? This is a book that Paul wrote, which most people today misunderstood as an exposition of the gospel. Oh, yeah, if you want to understand what the gospel is, read the book of Romans. That's not what, why the book of Romans was written. Nope. The book of Romans was written because the church in Rome was in the middle of an intense conflict. Paul had never been there yet, it seems. But there was a lot of Jews in the church at Rome. But now there was a growing number of Italians who loved their pork. And the book of Romans is in the context of this intense conflict and disagreement on the issue of how Gentiles are to be included in the church which was Jewish in its origins. And it doesn't seem like it's a book on conflict because Paul takes the first 11 chapters and he gives this exposition of the story we're in. Interesting. What's he doing? He's talking about our common story. He's talking about we're all part of this. Yeah. It's the same God, and we're in the same family. And he, and he we, you know, we're all sinners. We need grace. We need the same mercy. We're all in this together. Very powerfully lays it out. So he doesn't actually deal with conflict. till so chapter 14. <laughs> I think he starts referring to it in chapter 12 a little bit when he says, As much as lies within you, live peaceably with everyone. So, what a lot of us can forget, this seems so benign to us right now, but that Christianity began as an expression of Judaism. It wasn't a different religion. It was Judaism. Jesus was Jew, that all the apostles were Jew, they knew God loved Gentiles, but, 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 right? There's all these buts with Gentiles. Um, Jews uh, were distinct from other nations, of course, by how they dressed, by their weekly schedule, their Sabbath, their feasts, and probably most of all what they ate, their food. To this day, we understand the words kosher non-kosher, meaning foods. Today, I was doing a recipe, and I... I have to use kosher salt. My oven, I got a new gas oven with our Renos. It has a Sabbath mode on it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I hope it works. I set it on a timer. Maybe it won't. Oh, yeah, Saturday. Woo! We're good. <laughs> so, so far, so good, right? Even in Jesus' own life and ministries, there was, there was indications that things were going to change. When he engaged the the Syrian woman, you know, who wanted her daughter uh, healed and the Roman centurion, and he commended their faith as greater than all of those in Israel, he was already giving hints that things, there was change a coming. And he said that many would come from every nation of the world and sit with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob at the feast and the sons of the kingdom would be cast out and the way he engaged the Samaritan woman, and she became this amazing evangelist in her community. And he says these intriguing words at his last discourse before he goes to the cross. In the book of John, he says to his disciples, I have so much to say to you, but you can't handle it now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Well, whatever could he mean? What was he talking about? They can't bear it now. Well, I have a feeling that he was talking about this conflict that Paul was dealing with in Rome, and we're going to talk about Peter in a minute. But I think, I think there was just a whole world of slavery that was going to be abolished. And at that time, they couldn't comprehend. There was going to be a world where women and men could serve according to their gift. Regardless of what that gift was. If it was leadership, then let them lead. I don't think they could comprehend that at that time in a patriarchal society. And the fact that Gentiles, goyim, non-Jewish people, would have an equal say, equal place in the family of God. Not only to be in the church, but they could lead. Goyim? Now, in fairness, the Jews had a place for the goyim. They, 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 they could be a part of things, but they had to become Jews, right? And if you were a full-grown man, that was bad news. Ow! It hurts bad enough when you're a kid. I, I just vaguely remember it. But when you're growing up, I've heard it's, it's like really bad, right? And uh, so, so, so the men had to be circumcised. And everybody, you know, you had to become Jewish if you were going to become part of the family of God. So they had, a, they had a theology for that. That was fine. They were able to live with that. But then the unthinkable happened. To the guy that was marked as the leader of the church at the time, Paul hadn't really come around yet that much. It happened to, to Peter. He was on his usual Sunday afternoon nap after he'd preached. He was tired. He'd finally found his keys and life was good again. He'd been on this extended mission and he's he's having a nap at a guest house in the city of Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv. Scripture says he started feeling quite hungry and he was waiting for supper time and all of a sudden he went in a trance and he had a vision of all this non-kosher food. There was bacon, ham and eggs, bratwurst sausages, steak and lobster, shrimp pasta, and boiled octopus. <laughs> now you've got to understand that this was horrifying to Peter. This was, this was revolting, this was disgusting, and a voice said to him, Peter, it's dinner time, rise and make supper. And Peter said, Lord... He said, I would never eat anything like this that's unclean. I would never do this. Now he was commanded to do something that was regarded as an abomination in the book of Leviticus. It's the Hebrew word toba, which means detestable, offensive, and disgusting. So get this. The Holy Spirit is telling Peter to do something that's disgusting to him. And... This happens three times. This sheet comes down, and um, that word uh, is very used in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, and it categorizes all kinds of uh, disgusting behavior incest, adultery, bestiality, child sacrifice, idols, witchcraft, a defective animal for offering Yahweh, casting spells as a witch, and fraud. It's the same word used that describes shellfish and this unclean food. So Peter morally put it all in the same category. So an ironic side, side mo- note is the first time the word, this word is used in the Hebrew Bible. Do you know when it's the first time it's used? It's fascinating. It's, it's how the, he- the Egyptians viewed the Hebrews when they were living in Egypt. They were loathsome, disgusting. So it's an interesting kind of ironic twist that the first time this word is used is actually about the Gentiles and how they saw the Jews. Or the Hebrews. So these emotions that Peter was suffering as he was commanded to have dinner, he was revolted, disgusted. It's like, gag me. So we're talking strong emotions here. But the story continues. As the vision ends for Peter and he's pondering its meaning... There's a knock on the door, and unbeknownst to him, a Roman centurion in a Roman regiment up the coast called Caesarea. It's still there. There's a national park in Israel called Caesarea. It was visited by an angel and told to call for Peter. So this is a goyim. This is a Gentile. So Peter's invited. He makes the day journey, realizes this vision is very uh, significant. And he arrives at the house of Cornelia, and it's, he's invited all his friends and family and Peter comes to the threshold and he realizes the house is full of goyim and he can smell bacon and eggs and you know ham. And... So the scriptures say, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a, or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without re- objecting, objection. May I ask why you sent for me? So, first of all, he's really arrogant. I'm, so, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't just boot him out of the house. <laughs> not a great way to start, Peter. Uh, but he comes around. And he, he begins to speak. And he said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. So Peter's going through The Holy Spirit is working in him. And he he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel... ...announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea... ...beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power... And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. So what's Peter doing? He's telling the story. It's the story that embraces everyone and tells them that everybody matters to God. He's telling the story we all love to tell. I'll never get tired of telling it. The story of God's rescue mission, the story of a broken-hearted God and Father who wants His kids back. And when we got it all wrong, He didn't give up on us and throw us in the garbage heap. But He developed a plan of rescue, but it was really strange. Because the, the scandal of it is is that God himself would not do it without humanity. And God himself became human. He lived on earth as the ultimate human one, which is what the Son of Man means when Jesus referred to himself as that. And he showed us how to live the ultimate human life. And he lived, died, rose again, conquered death, and calls us now to join him in that mission of rescue of peace, of reconciliation, of mercy, with the message that everyone, everyone matters to God. It's the message of Luke, chapter 15, the shepherd and the sheep. It's the Luke message that not only the rich matter to God, but the poor. Not only the men, but the women. Not only adults, but children. Not only white people, but people of color. Not only straight people, but sexual minorities. They all matter. God. That's my story. By the way, congratulations, Gloria. She's kind of got this glow on her today. She's a grandma. Everybody matters to God.
0: Everybody.
1: And the joy and the pride that Gloria feels for that newborn... Eva, Eva. yeah, little girl. God feels for every person and a million times more every time they arrive into the world. He loves them. They matter to him. And so we're witnesses of this, Peter said. Of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. And he was seen, not seen by all the people, by, by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter's burst in the story. He's just immersed in the story. So I say to us, The first step, if you miss anything else I say today, is immerse yourself in that story. Mm -hmm. Live, eat, breathe it. So that you can live the story. You can live it out. You can recognize and discern. So I love this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit... Now, what's going on here? The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message... The the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished (laughs) because God just messed up their theology that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God and Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've already received the Holy Spirit. So Peter is now starting to act in a way that's different than what he believed before. Because the Holy Spirit has led him into truth, not by what he said, but by what he did. What's God doing? What's God doing? I, I love Peter Schizero's his latest devotional he sent out. Most important question a pastor can ask God. Is how do I get not how do I get my church to grow or how do I get this thing this program happening or how does becomes Most important question I can ask God is what are you doing? What are you doing? I, I love this passage. This is a very special passage to me because one of my favorite memories of my dad's legacy. I got to wrap it up here. I want to get into communion. I'm not going to be able to finish this today, so we'll we'll continue this in a couple of weeks. But I want to wrap it up by saying this. My dad, he, uh, probably his greatest legacy for me was his wrestling with this passage of scripture. And the way he used to preach it is when the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, Peter looked up at God and said, God, you can't do that. <laughs> and my dad tells about the story, the same thing happened to him as a Pentecostal minister who grew up, Believing the Catholic Church was the harlot church of the book of Revelation. I'm serious. I grew up with that. And it was preached on all our pulpits. That harlot church. Catholic church. And one day my dad saw this video or something of 100,000 Catholics in Notre Dame University Stadium. They were all lifting their hands, worshiping God in tongues. Singing. And my dad said the same thing as Peter. God, you can't do that. And for him, it started, my dad was a bit of a mystic. And um, he was praying in his little office in High Prairie, Alberta. And he's, he, he, I've never heard anybody else use this language, but he said he was throwing his spirit to the north and the east and the west as he was praying. It was like he's extending his heart and his spirit as he's interceding. My dad was a real intercessor. And he said he went to the north and the south and the east, and it was all black. But when he threw his spirit to the west, all he could see was this fire. This light just lit up the horizon. Well, he, his day job, as I've often told you, he never got paid being a pastor all through my growing up years. He was a full-time teacher, school teacher, and he was the superintendent of instruction for the largest geographical school district in Alberta at the High Prairie School Division. And it included these Catholic communities of Falaire, Juraville, Donnelly in northern Alberta. And they were all French Catholic. But because to, 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 I guess, meet government expectations, he had to come in and still supervise. And so he wasn't exactly the most welcome company coming in as a pa- Protestant pastor from a public school into these ca- French Catholic schools to supervise their curriculum. And so often it was like fungus among us. You know, It was like not exactly welcome here. And uh, so during my first year away, I I left home at 19 to go to Orange County, California to go to Bible school. During that time, he hosted a renewal meeting in northern Alberta in the the school gym. And people came from all over the area. And a short time later, he walked into one one of these French schools in Juraville, and he heard a friendly voice say, hello, Pastor Lagore. And it was a French Catholic school teacher by the name of Ernie Chauvet and they immediately struck up a friendship with a Catholic nun as well, became part of that, Sister Aquina, who prophesied our wedding. And that friendship lasted till my father's passing. In fact, Ernie wrote to my, my, a a note at my father's funeral, and he sent a note along saying he credits my dad with starting the Catholic charismatic movement in Alberta. You see, because my my dad was a a Pentecostal, the Catholics thought, well, who better to teach us about the Holy Spirit than a Pentecostal? So my dad was invited by these folks to teach at a Life in the Spirit seminar at this huge Catholic center in Falaire, Alberta, not far away from Joraville. And one of the first weekends he taught at, I came home from Bible school. It was a weekend. And there were many Catholics who received the gift of the Holy Spirit, were speaking in tongues. And my dad took me to this retreat, and there I met a beautiful Catholic school teacher. And within a year, we were married at a joint Catholic-slash-Pentecostal wedding with a Catholic priest and a Pentecostal minister, my dad, performing the ceremony. My dad was often misunderstood for doing this as a Pentecostal. Like Peter, sometimes hauled on the carpet. And see, what happens is the guardians of religious orthodoxy, they want to they call him to account. And this is what happened to Peter. After this happened with Peter, the people in Jerusalem called him on account. Now, in a fairness, a lot of this reaction came from fear. The Jewish people regarded themselves as still being in exile. And even though they were back in their homeland, they were still under occupation and they'd been sent into exile for idolatry, and much of that idolatry they blamed for their association with the Gentiles, with the Gentile nations around them. And so they wanted to stay pure so that God would not deliver them to the Romans, but deliver them from the Romans. So Peter's actions, they felt, were an issue of national security. And so his defense was, he just simply told a story. He's just, he described what God did. He described what God was doing and this brings us to the most important first point of, uh, of civil discourse in the church is first spirituality, then theology. And what do I mean by that? Now, we love the Bible. The Bible's a beautiful gift. But let's, let's remember, some people love the Bible more than they love God. The Bible is vital. It's a vital document of the story of our encounter with God. It began with Abraham. I'd say, oh, but Abraham didn't have a Bible. He had an encounter with God. Then that encounter was documented later, I guess, by Moses and others. And then then we refer to those encounters and our ongoing encounters with God. So it's not like we go, oh, that was nice. Let's, Let's look for something different. No, there's a consistency and a continuity in that story. But we get in trouble when we put our theology before encounter with God. There's a story we're in. Christianity is about encountering God or spirituality, and theology provides the language for those encounters. But the problem with theology is language is also always changing. And guess what? As we've seen from this story today, God is always up to something. And he doesn't mind messing with our theology to do it. So I think that's very important because this comes into, the whole, into play with the whole idea of civil discourse. So I had much more to say to you today, but you cannot bear it now. <laughs> but the Spirit will lead you into all truth. But what I'd like to do is skip ahead, this is all good stuff, and I'll talk about this more uh, next week. What moral discourse is, it's the giving, hearing of reasons uh, of one another, where both the ones being asked and the ones who are doing the asking show respect, honor, and patience towards one another. So we begin to see that in the book of Acts with Peter, the way they handled his his thing. And then we're going to look at Acts chapter 15, which... Which is where the church deliberates the Holy Spirit's actions. And you see them struggling. And that's what Romans 14, 15, 16 is all about. is this struggle with what the Holy Spirit did. Now as I said on, uh, a little earlier, Saturday was St. Uh, Francis of Assisi feast day. Actually, I think it was Friday. But they celebrated yesterday. And one of my favorite prayers is this one by St. Francis. Who, in the middle of the Crusades when Christian leaders were telling military leaders to attack the Muslims in the Middle East and win back Jerusalem, the Sultan of Egypt declared war against the Christians and he offered a reward for 5,000 Christian heads. So St. Francis somehow got in a little boat with one of his little friars and they, they sailed across the Mediterranean to Egypt unarmed And appeared before the Sultan of Egypt, the one who had asked for the heads of all the Christians. And they were so vulnerable and so weak and so foolish it totally disarmed the Sultan. And to give you the Coles notes of what happened, they formed a friendship that lasted a lifetime of loving mutual discourse. To this day, we don't know whether the Sultan became a Christian. But to St. Francis, it didn't matter. And he has this prayer that I love. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. So I'd like that to be our communion prayer today. And the power of the story is it is it brings us to an awakening of our common humanity as sisters and brothers, and even with those who are not in faith, with those that, are, that have a different theological view than us, people that have a different world view than us, we're reminded, uh, somebody beautifully said this in Calgary, is that remembering is also in the context of the body, we're remembered from our isolation to being members of one another. That happens through this giving of the body and the blood of Christ. So I'm just going to invite Will and Rick to come. Prepare to serve us. And I want to ask the question today. I think it's in your bulletin. Is how might seeing the common humanity of those that you disagree with how might seeing some common ground help in this discourse, this disagreement, this division that you may be struggling with? And if fear comes up, because fear is usually a big part of conflict. Fear feeds conflict. Ask yourself, what am I afraid of? And remember that Jesus promised that perfect love cast out all fear. And so we are going to uh, first of all serve our sisters and brothers who are with disabilities and mobility issues and uh, then if you're here for the first time uh, we usually line up and come down the front and uh, Rick and Will will serve the, the, the cup and the bread And uh, they'll offer you some words, and you can respond with amen or thanks be to God as they offer you the body and the blood of Christ. But I'd like like this to be a renewing and a remembering of this story, that everybody matters to God. And who in your vision and in your sphere have you been tempted to say, well, yes, but, like the Jews did with the Gentiles 2,000 years ago, Yes, but, and then ask yourself, Lord, heal my vision, heal my heart of what this story is all about. And if you need prayer, just want to invite you to just hang around here at the front or go back to your seat and have communion with someone and have them pray with you. Uh, if the Lord is just working in something in your heart, if there's fear, uh, don't leave without prayer. So the Bible says, the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup and he lifted it up. And he said, this is the covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. So Lord, we bless this bread, we bless this cup. Lord, its brokenness reminds us of our brokenness and how you became broken to make us whole, to remember us, to bring us out of our isolation, and to connect us again with the story. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come? In Jesus' name.